You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. We talk a lot about the changes in the way that people use energy and get their energy in the context of climate change. You know, how we need to get away from oil production, and we are getting away to a degree from oil production, in order to ensure that the world doesn't light itself on fire, as we're seeing currently in the West Coast of the United States. But one of the relatively under-discussed aspects of this shift in the way that energy is produced and used is the way that it's affecting global politics and the way that it's changing uh, relationships between even some of the world's most important countries. And so we're going to talk about that today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. What's up, guys? Hey, before we get into this energy stuff that I'm, I'm super excited to talk about, it would be great if we could get you to fill out a brief survey. That's what I'm going to ask you to do. We need you to help plan our future by filling out this, this short little thing. It's at voxmedia.com slash podsurvey, and it will help us understand who's listening and how your listening habits have changed in the past few months. So... Uh, check it out, please. Thanks. Hey, we uh, we have an exciting episode for you today, folks. We, in the first half, are going to talk about this sort of big picture stuff. And then in the second half, Alex has a really interesting interview with uh, Daniel Jurgen, who is a, an energy politics expert, well-regarded. Uh, and he has a new book out on exactly this topic. Uh, so that's a sort of very exciting dive into the way that we think about energy in the context of the world. But first, we we want to do a little bit of table setting for y'all because there's, uh, it's really, I think, underappreciated, maybe not by, you know, the narrow confines of energy experts, but in the sort of broad spectrum of discussion about international politics, how, how radical the shift has been from the way we used to talk about the role of energy in global politics to the way that we think about it now, right? You know, and in a, in a previous age, Everything was centered on the big oil producers in the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, et cetera, and, and OPEC, the cartel that coordinated them in a few other countries uh, in, in a sort of network that managed the levels at which oil was produced. And this could have really massive impacts on the global market. But, you know, now uh, we talk about OPEC a lot less. Why is that? Shale. <laughs> yes, shale. Uh, and I'll get to this in just a second. So where it used to be OPEC, this, um, you know, 
cartel, let's say, of energy supplying uh, countries, many of which happen to be in the Middle East. There are really three key energy players now in the world when we think about it. Uh, Saudi Arabia, still still one. Russia, another. And now the United States, which because of shale uh, has become an incredibly powerful, the most uh, exporty country for oil and energy. Um, That's a technical like term, in, most exporty. Yeah. Ladies most exporty. I like most exporty. We are, we, we are uh, and, real serious experts here today. But that, Alex, means the world's largest exporter of oil is the United States currently. I, this is a massive shift because it was really a decade like or two decades really ago that the U.S. was a net importer of energy. Uh, it, it was bringing it in from Saudi Arabia, from many other countries. And it was for that reason that the U.S. maintained such strong ties with certain countries, again, many of which happened to be in the Gulf in part, not because of values or, you know, the good relationships between the presidents or, or you know, the president of the United States and, and the king in Saudi Arabia or whatever. It was because there was this oil energy and it was effective trade. Oil would come to the United States and the U.S. would provide security and economic support um, for, for other nations. Now that the U.S. is a net exporter and this massive super energy superpower because of the shale revolution, which I know we'll get into in a bit, uh, it has given the U.S. freedom to navigate, basically, a, a little more wiggle room to do what it wants. Uh, an example that many people point out is, you know, Obama probably couldn't have gotten the Iran deal without the shale revolution for the simple reason being, you know, the sanctions put on Iranian oil. Normally, you would think in a world where the U.S. couldn't provide as much energy, countries would go, uh, oh, wait a minute, like the prices are going up or changing or we're not getting our stuff. And then, you know, the, the sort of sanctions regime would go away. In a world where the U.S. can give energy, that sanctions pressure can remain, and then Iran came to the table. So, like, it's it, there are tangible effects to like this shift. That's absolutely correct, and you know, I think what's interesting, and you know, obviously, I think you and and Jurgen will talk about this in your um, interview in the second half. But part of the the kind of U.S. foreign policy dependency. Uh, on foreign oil was, you know, the kind of motivating, kind of defining, or at least one of the defining kind of axes around which, you know, geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy, um, you know, turned. And, you know, we had a long history of, you know, controversies of people, you know, accusing administrations of, of fighting wars for oil. Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, tries to, you know, seize its its oil reserves, Effectively, the U.S. intervenes, right? There's the U.S. military uh, and particularly naval presence in the Strait of Hormuz in, you know, the Persian Arab Gulf uh, is in large part to maintain the free flow of oil from, you know, Gulf countries um, and to make sure that, the, that Iran doesn't cut it off. Um, you know, also with China, and we'll talk about this more later, but the South China Sea and, and you know, China's kind of insistence on controlling that vital pathway through which it gets most of its oil. Um and and natural gas and other imports. But now, as you said, you know, U.S. had this big kind of shale revolution, um, fracking uh, natural gas, right? This, this ability to suddenly get a lot more out of our ground than we ever did before. But it's also, you know, not just changed geopolitics, obviously. Um, it's changed the United States. It's created, you know, tens of thousands of jobs. It's uh, you know, kind of completely revolutionized entire, you know, areas. I'm from Texas. Uh, it's kind of a big deal there. 
it's made the U.S., as you said, this kind of global superpower in a way that I don't think anybody ever, you know, would have predicted. Like, you know, I, I don't even think, you know, 20 years ago, if you had said that the U.S. was going to be, you know, a global energy superpower, it was just like, uh, what? No. You know, we do import some, you know, oil for other products that we use for refineries, but, you know, again, net exporter. And like you said, that gives us a lot of flexibility. It means we're less kind of dependent on making sure that, you know, for instance, that, you know, oil can use to flow in the Strait of Hormuz. Something I find really interesting uh, in particular when it comes to geopolitics, right? You think about Saudi Arabia being another one of the big three. Um, you know, Iran is suspected of having launched uh, kind of attacks on Saudi Arabia earlier this year, um, in particularly targeting Saudi Aramco, right? The, the Saudi-owned state oil company. Um, in previous kind of, you know, decades, that could have potentially been a massive, massive disruption in in the global, you know, oil market, right? But it was kind of not, you know, it was a big deal for a while. And yes, you know, it created some military tension that thankfully didn't go anywhere. It could have escalated. But in terms of like the actual oil impact, right, again, you know, the U.S. ability to kind of provide this kind of huge stability um, and this huge, you know, output kind of means that individual shocks are also less kind of uh, impactful. And it gives a lot more flexibility in terms of, you know, actions and, and policies that we can kind of undertake and loosen some of the leverage that other countries have over the U.S. Yeah, I think in the context of the Middle East, um, it does open the door not only to these um, particular changes, but to a more radical rethinking of what the United States can and should be doing there. Uh, and most notably, I think about the the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, Right. Uh, you know, we you talked about um, it being, you know, a relationship of mutual dependence and, and mutual benefit. But now that the United States doesn't need Saudi Arabia's oil market as much as it does, and it doesn't need to maintain a patron client relationship uh, for uh, economic reasons, you can start thinking, well, is this as a matter of geopolitics benefiting the United States as much as it does if the U.S. pressures Saudi Arabia to change its behavior on something like the war in Yemen or uh, its treatment of dissidents at home, do you, will Saudi retaliation or any you know intransigence in doing what the U.S. wants be as impactful? And the answer now is no, right? The United States now has tremendous leverage and ability to disengage from the Middle East that it didn't before. And in a certain way, this is really exciting, right? Because it means we aren't forced into this relationship of mutual support with what I see as a particularly odious government uh, in, in the Saudis. And, you know, there are several other Gulf countries that fit similar patterns, though I think aren't quite as bad. Um, just sheerly by virtue of size, Saudi Arabia is so large and and in terms of its economic footprint and its geopolitical activities, uh, like said involvement in Yemen, that it's uh, responsible for a great deal more of, of the region's problems than a country like the UAE. Now, of course, this is not to write off Iranian involvement and not to say the U.S. should realign itself with Iran, as some people were very strangely proposing, a small number of people, but some, in, uh, in the Obama era. Rather, it's that the U.S. has as less of an obligation to be playing an active role on one side or the other of this like 
oil producing country dispute that animates a lot of Middle East geopolitics. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you get the Biden campaign sort of stance that the U.S. can very clearly weaken its relationship with Saudi Arabia or rather downgrade it is probably a better word um, without this energy revolution in the United States. Right. If you don't have shale, you don't have Biden really criticizing Saudi. Now, you would to a certain extent because of the Khashoggi murder and all that um, and the Yemen war. But this notion that like the the U.S. could in effect somewhat decouple from Saudi Arabia, which is not totally what Biden is saying, but is an implication or a possibility from from the policies he's proposing, you don't get that without the shale revolution. And so it it opens up a lot of doors. Of course, it also opened uh, another door. For example, would be uh, you know when Trump rails against uh, Germany or a bunch of Europeans for like importing Russian oil and Nord Stream, whatever it may be. Part of it is because of his anachronistic views of like, well, if you're a NATO, why aren't we protecting you from Russia? So why are you buying from Russia? That's part of it. But the other bit is it's just a, you know, a prize fight because they're like, hey, stop buying Russian stuff, buy our stuff. Um, And like that helps the U.S. economy, but also uh, would further integrate the U.S. and Europe. And so like it gives the U.S. uh, more, again, more flexibility to like make friends, go after adversaries like Russia, because again, if they're buying from us, it's hurting the, the Russian bottom line. Um, but of course, the dangers here, uh, and I'm sure I'll get into this a bit with Jurgen, but like it would seem that America being all, you know, being fine with this new energy revolution and go forth shale and all well and good, it seems like we're like taking the short term wins and they are real for the long term problems of like, you know, worsening climate. Yeah, that's what I really want to talk about here because right? I, I sort of set this whole conversation up by talking about the need to transition away from fossil fuels. And we've been talking about shale this whole time, which is the immediate driver of of the energy revolution uh, in in geopolitics. But the question is now, and Europe is is a really good case here, like what happens in a world where we start lessening our dependence on fossil fuels in general, not just, you know, specific supplier sources, but people are less interested in in developed countries, especially in buying oil and gas products and instead are trying to use more electricity generated by renewable sources and trying to figure out manufacturing alternatives to, uh, you know, fossil fuel intensive plastics and stuff like that. It seems to me that we're we're almost in the beginnings of a, of a much bigger transformation given how quick action needs to be taken if we want to prevent truly catastrophic climate change. No, I think that's fair. I, I and it is. I think it's it's undoubtedly clear, right? As I as I said even before you, you spoke, like this is a short term solution, short to medium terms win uh, in the sense of like America's foreign policy. But the long term problem is, of course, the, this climate change issue. And so, how do you start making the shift? What I what I worry about, and and you know, Jurgen's book, which uh, I, I read before the interview, makes clear, um, is like. There are millions of jobs at stake. There are millions of lives at stake, or livelihoods, I should say. When we talk about the sectors that people are currently engaged in, like shale has created a lot of jobs and helped a lot of people in in Texas, in the Midwest, in North Dakota. Um, Jobs even that like, you know, are helping elsewhere as far away as New York. Um, Industries that I think, you know, it's a bit sarcastic to mention this, but I think it's still worth pointing out that, you know, the more power like the American oil industry gets, the more power like the anti-oil industry gets. And like that creates some jobs too. So like this is, there's a sort of ecosystem here. And I use that as a pun in a sense. But like how, how you 
balance that is something that this administration is clearly not thinking about. They are all in on shale. The Biden administration is starting to think a little bit more about this. But even then, you have the Bi- you have Biden in Pennsylvania be like, I'm not banning fracking. I'm not doing it. So there's sort of a sense of reality that like this is the world we're in now. It's just going to be really hard to shift. And how that can sort of hurt America's image, especially when the Europeans are clearly trying to move to, to net carbon emissions by 2050, when you've got the Saudis trying to even to a certain extent change their economy, when you've got other nations like China and India wanting to rise, but also realizing that they can't really do it with this in the same sort of fossil fuels that we use. Like it requires a big investment and interest in the U.S. And it doesn't seem like we're seeing that. Yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting in this kind of argument about, you know, does going all in on fracking, you know, sacrifice the long term in favor of the short term? Um, you know, it is kind of the argument about the development of of renewables and technology. So, you know, if you kind of look at China, you know, its situation is similar to what the U.S. was before the Shell Revolution in the sense that it is, you know, very heavily dependent on, you know, it is a, an exporter of of oil. It's, I think, number five in the country. Um, but it it imports something, you know, a really high percentage of, of its energy um, through oil and natural gas. And you know, because it has this kind of strategic dependence on other countries for you know, for its oil and energy needs in the way that the U.S. used to, it is also trying to work to kind of reduce that dependence. And one of the ways it's doing that is by going, you know, kind of full speed ahead, kind of trying to leapfrog and essentially go to renewables and, you know, becoming this massive powerhouse when it comes to producing solar panels and, and that kind of technology. And so one of the questions there is that, you know, by trying to maintain and, you know, further this U.S. dominance, this U.S. kind of powerhouse of, of shale, are we as a country, you know, failing to think in a longer term strategic way about becoming a far more influential player in the renewable and, you know, solar panel and and kind of that game? Um, you know, are we you know, spending too much money and doing too much to support and boost fracking, um, which, you know, in, in the short term is creating a lot of jobs, but could we also be doing that with renewables? I think that's one of the kind of main questions. Um, you know, China is is doing really well at dominating a lot of things that also happens to dominate in terms of rare earth minerals, uh, things that are used in, you know, lithium batteries that power electric vehicles and, and other products. Um, you know, so China is doing a lot to kind of, you know, fight back against that that dependence on on foreign oil. Um, but in doing so, it is vastly surpassing the United States in terms of manufacturing capacity for a lot of like the, the products that are going to eventually, just because of the market, become the future of, you know, of the energy market in terms of renewables. So I, I think that's a question that isn't quite really answered um, yet in this kind of this trade-off debate. So this is something that that bothers me about the way that foreign policy conversations surrounding energy often operate. And I, I don't mean this to pick on you, uh, Jen, or Alex, or, or, Jer- or Jurgen, or anyone else in particular, but just the general tenor of the conversation. Right when we talk about energy, right, what what we're really talking about fundamentally is an issue. Uh, at which the future of the planet is at stake. And I'm not exaggerating here, right? Like we've all read the scientific models or at least popular press summaries of them. We've looked at the evidence of what's happening right now in extreme weather events that can be attributable to a world in which weather is hotter. And it is obvious that there is like a, preventing climate change is a positive something for the entire world, right? Everyone is worse off. Every human being on the planet 
is worse off pretty much with a few exemptions for like Russian shippers who want to get through parts of the Arctic that would be melting, right? In a world where things are a lot hotter and eventually it would become to a point where it's a, which a true catastrophe for not just the planet, but, but the, you know, human race in general, right? This is a, a fundamentally moral and existential issue for humanity. And, but, but in the foreign policy world, it gets talked about like, well, is the U S ahead of China? Is it behind China? Is, how is this going to change the way that we relate to Iran? And like all of those things are important in the medium term. And I obviously was doing some of that speculation on, uh, on my own earlier, but ultimately what really matters here, the thing that is fundamentally at stake is something much bigger than the petty squabbles between various different nations. And if something's not going to, you know, cause some kind of mass human suffering by virtue of a war or something like that, I feel like every other consideration needs to take a back seat to the true existential crisis facing the world's countries. And we need to stop thinking about things in terms of realist balance of power type stuff and start thinking about common global interests and generalized policies necessary to solve them. And if that screws over Saudi Arabia's oil producing mechanism, or even requires a massive job training program in the United States to move people away from shale, well, we we have to do that because otherwise many, many more people are going to die. You know, I, I take your point, but I don't think they're petty squabbles, right? I, I think, I kind of actually think that we probably agree where you're kind of getting to at the end there, you know, talking about whether China gets ahead in terms of dominating the the solar, you know, and renewables market, it isn't necessarily just about power imbalance. It's about the literal market. It's about jobs, right? The fact that, you know, the shale revolution has created tens of thousands of American jobs is not a petty squabble, right? Like that is, that is a, a fact. And the fact that, you know, if we are to move away from that, um, if there, you know, we are to ban fracking, as you know, Bernie Sanders and, and others have, you know, argued, well, you have to have something to replace all of those jobs, right? Like that doesn't, you don't just have, you know, millions of people just unemployed all of a sudden, right? And that's where you, you know, talk about these job training programs, but but that takes money and that takes, you know, a decision, and that's why when you look, you know, vis-a-vis China in terms of like. Do we just let China go ahead on on this? It, it's not necessarily just about I don't want China to go first. It's that if China ends up dominating the market, then you know if they can vastly undercut other countries in that production, then that means that those U.S. jobs are going to be less valuable because China will have already dominated. So when you talk about it, it's like it's not just about you know fracking U.S. versus China. The decision to move away from fossil fuels if part of that decision is to obviously move away from fracking, then that decision needs to be kind of taken into consideration other major countries and other major producers' position in the market, which goes to geopolitics, and that's important. But it also, again, is just the specifics of the actual way that selling and buying products works and that impact that that has on millions of jobs and millions of people's lives. That is not a petty squabble. Well, just to put a fine point on that, like the the... Russia and Saudi Arabia are still feeling whiplash from the U.S. just surpassing it in terms of exports. And like uh, the governments, of course, have had to, to sort of change their policies. But let's not forget that there are like millions of lives in Russia and Saudi Arabia that have been hurt and affected because like the U.S. sprang ahead. 
right? I mean, this is what happens when you have a shift in, in the market, like some country dominates more than others. And so, like, I could I agree with Jen that if China were to beat us at photovoltaics and other kinds of, um, you know, uh, and wind or whatever it may be, then, like, American livelihoods are going to be hurt. This is just what happens. Uh, and so I, I do believe that this is like a fight not only for climate, it's a fight for, uh, you know, sort of U.S. economics. And like, let's be also clear that, you know, fossil fuels, it just doesn't seem like they're going away within the next, you know, maybe in four or five decades. Like, that's a long time. And so you have to plan your foreign policies around that. Um, and so I, 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 I don't think they're petty squabbles, but I do agree that like we should have a, a broader concept. Last point, because uh, I'd be remiss in a conversation like this to not bring up uh, George Carlin's observation. Uh, you know, when we talk about climate change, the planet's going to be fine. We're the ones that are going to be in, in, <laughs> in trouble. Uh, and so, like, the planet is a self-healing mechanism. We're all going to be uh, the ones uh, that suffer from, from a world dying from climate change. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Alex is going to uh, walk you through a more specific, detailed, and well-researched argument on the nature of energy geopolitics with expert Daniel Jurgen. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Daniel Jurgen, uh, thanks for joining Worldly for the second half of our podcast uh, based on your book, The New Map. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. and glad to be on with you. Happy to have you. Uh, so I, I guess I just want to start, you know, we had a whole discussion just now about your big three thesis, right? It's the United States, Russia, Saudi Arabia as the main energy players in the world. And I guess I want to start to build off of that foundation in, in our conversation. So first, I, I think I'd like to talk about, you know, a lot of the book is about the energy producers, the big three, as you mentioned. Uh, but I'm interested in also the energy consumers. Who are the people that are going to drive, you know, the energy that's consumed, whether it's whether it's oil, whether it's coal, whatever it may be, or renewables? Who are we looking to to, you know, sell a lot of this stuff to down the line? Of course, it's the traditional consumers that, you know, for a century or more, which is 
North America and Europe. But the big new consumers over the last 20 years are the emerging markets. No one is bigger than China, uh, which is uh, the second largest consumer of energy in the world after the United States. And the other that's coming up fast is India. So it's the two, the two giants of the, of the global economy. It's very interesting because actually the United States is in this unique position of being a really big producer and the biggest consumer at the same time. So what are the challenges there? Because when you have a, a country like the U.S., which is now becoming this, this net exporter, you also have a domestic audience that needs to consume that energy. How, how does one actually balance sort of, you know, selling abroad and, and, and just making sure people have what they need at home? You know, we, we I mean, once upon a time, the U.S. was by far the largest uh, exporter of oil. You know, during World War II, out of seven barrels, every seven barrels of oil that were used by the Allies in World War II, six came from the United States. Then the U.S. became this really big uh, imported as our industry went down. Now uh, we were headed to being a major uh, exporter, but because of COVID and the economic dark age that's come with it, uh, we're still, you know, importing maybe more oil than would have been thought uh, uh, a year ago. But uh, but it, one of the other odd things is even though we import oil, we also export oil because different grades of oil go into our refineries to go into people's gasoline tanks. And we produce the oil that we produce here balances out because it, it goes to other markets. And uh, Alex, you'll be surprised to know, or maybe not surprised to know, one of the biggest markets for U.S. oil exports is China. Yeah. One of the interesting things I found in the book is that China not only has actually quite a big oil producer itself, I believe it, you said it was fifth, but it is requiring a lot of China is importing not only just from us, but from other parts of the world. I mean, China as the big net importer seems to be a massive shift in the way we think about energy geopolitics. Yes. Uh, I think it really reflects how the world has changed just since the beginning of this century. The growth in Chinese uh, imports has been huge. And China regards that as a strategic problem. It regards it particularly as a strategic problem vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And so it's sought to diversify, move in different directions, but it imports 75% of its oil. And a lot of oil comes through the South China Sea, which may seem far away to people, but is the most important trade route of all bodies of water in the world. And also probably right now, potentially at least the most dangerous. And is this the fact that the U.S. is such an energy powerhouse now and China really is not, it is, it's somewhat a flip in the sense that China is now such a big importer. Is this the, a big source of leverage for the United States as it considers this seemingly you know, cold war with China? Well, I think it, 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 you know, it is, you know, it is seem to be heading towards some kind of new kind of cold war with China. Uh, it's, I, I think it's actually where it's loomed largest in the trading relationship because Part of the deal that uh, Donald Trump made just before COVID with China actually uh, looked to China to import for large amounts of oil and natural gas from the United States. So I don't think it gives us leverage because the Chinese do have other alternatives. There are a lot of other places they can go. They want to buy U.S. energy because it helps in their trade disputes with the United States. At the same time, they want to diversify and because uh, they, do, they do worry about dependence in general. Now that we're on China and the U.S., I mean, a lot of the current U.S.-China policy, of course, is because of President Donald Trump. And what I'm interested in uh, that I've read a lot about in your, well, having read the book, is that, you know, there is the new map, but the map makers make this map, or at least there are different versions of the map. Right. And, and, and on Trump's map, it is a world in which the U.S. should be and should focus, uh, should be an energy, big energy maker, and should focus on uh 
you know, sort of our own domestic source of energy over anything else. And that's, and then of course has trade-offs. One of the trade-offs is you're well aware and you write about is climate change, right? So in this world, I mean, there seems to be a tension where, you know, fracking, for example, and shale has made the U.S. such a, such this energy powerhouse, such a major player that has given us such power. Um, at the same time, our reliance and our, and at least the Trump administration's decision to prioritize this sector seems to have this long-term effect of, uh, of climate issues. Yeah, I think uh, f- first, obviously, I mean, I can see firsthand the impact uh, the change U.S. energy position has had in terms of uh, giving a whole new positive dimension to our relationship with India, a country with whom we've had a very complex relationship. I think um, uh, I think you have to look at it in a global framework. There are 280 million cars in the United States. Almost all of them run on gasoline. Average car in the United States stays on the road 12 years. So, you know, we're going to continue to consume oil for a number of years, even though we have an energy transition, even though, you know, Joe Biden, for instance, has a $2 trillion climate program. And so the question is, whose oil are we going to consume? Is it going to be oil produced here where the dollars stay in this country and go into jobs and go into buying equipment and so forth? Or does that money go overseas into sovereign wealth funds of countries? So, you know, if we put a, um, a ban or real big restrictions on fracking, uh, as it's called, otherwise known as hydraulic fracturing uh, and horizontal drilling, if we put a ban on it, uh, what would happen? Well, it would be good news for Saudi Arabia and Russia because they would be selling more oil and we'd be importing oil from them and from other countries. So you can't look at, you know, what happens in these countries, say, oh, we stop this and therefore we've solved the climate change problem. I mean, we're talking about it decades of uh, energy transition, not overnight, because it's just, you know, 84% of world energy comes from oil, gas, and coal right now. Let, let's stay on this for a moment, because uh, one of the counters to that sort of argument that you make and is, you know, one, yes, we could not be selling as much oil, and the Russias and the Saudi Arabias of the world would, would fill in that gap, of course. But at the same time, then, you know, the U.S., if it's not focusing so much on that industry, could be focusing more on renewables and tech, and so basically focusing its attention elsewhere. Well, well, I think I think that's happening anyway. I mean, you know, we're going to see a lot more wind and a lot more solar coming. Now, keep in mind, wind and solar do not power your right. car. <laughs> you know, it, uh, so we're, we are talking about oil. We're also talking about all the equipment and plastics in a hospital operating room. We're talking about the the masks that you wear to prevent uh, getting COVID nineteen. Uh, uh, you know, there are lots of other uses for oil, in fact, in our economy, um, you know, transit, but people just think about cars, but, it, but, you know, you, you just don't shut down an industry that before COVID was employing over 12 million people. Uh, and in fact, if you do that, uh, a lot of people are not going to get to work because they're not going to have fuel. So that's why, that's why it's a transition and an evolution. That's why the question Does it happen, you know, is it the target 2050, 2060? I mean, it's just the reality of the the nature of the world we live in. Maybe if everybody stays home and uh, everybody works from home and no one goes to work, you know, in the traditional way, we would use less oil. And that's what some people are saying. You know, that will be one of the consequences. Let's just stay on this point for one more moment, which is say that some people writing on the book will say that, sure, there is a transition. And of course, you know, there's a massive industry that is employing tons of Americans. And you'll even see, as you've pointed out, Joe Biden in Pennsylvania saying, I will not ban fracking, right? And I'll repeat, I will not ban fracking. That seems to be a signal to the reality, the political reality, and also the economic reality. 
At the same time, there are those who would say, you know, the time for such a transi- transition is running out. Obviously, the numbers you point out are pretty staggering and and put a dent in the hopes of a lot of, uh, you know, people who want to deal with climate change immediately. Uh, the fact that 84% of oil uh, is what we use right now, solar, wind are pretty low. But at the same time, if you have, you know, the, if the predictions of experts of the UN, et cetera, are true, that we only have a few decades at best to make this transition, then how, how does one balance that? Because it seems like, at least in this administration, we've gone in one way. Well, I think what the administration has basically done is sort of to some degree is just said, this is a, you know, a good thing. Let's, you know, and obviously Donald Trump is out there saying to, you know, Angela Merkel, buy natural gas from us, don't buy it from the Russians. Uh, but, you know, it's just the reality of what the physical world is. I mean, I did a, we did a study with um, Ernie Moniz, the former energy secretary for Bill Gates and the Breakthrough Energy Coalition, pointed out we don't actually have the technologies to do what people would like to do tomorrow. We need, I mean, really what we need is science. We need new technologies. We need, we're going to need carbon capture technologies. We're going to need batteries that can store electricity from renewables uh, at very large scale for, you know, not for two hours, but for days and weeks. So, you know, the real answer to this issue is going to be technology and putting a lot, you know, the U.S. government under previous administrations, this, you know, this, you know, $6.5 billion goes into basic science energy science research. So that's the real, you know, it's not going to be regulated. We're not going to regulate our way to solving this problem. We're going to find technological solutions to solve this this problem. And that takes time. And that's something that we've really got to step on the gas for. Yeah. And in this, in this case, I think you see actually agreement between Trump and Biden. I should have said at the start of this, uh, you've, adv- you've advised presidents from, you know, Trump all the way uh, and back to Clinton. Clinton right. Obama. Right, exactly. So, so you've been dealing with this quite a bit. And I, and what's interesting is, you know, over I having tracked this issue a bit over time, it seems like now both parties have arrived at a similar conclusion, which is, you know, government has a role. Of course, it can invest in certain technologies. It can, uh, you know, play certain bets. But at the end of the day, it's finding a way to stimulate a private sector to create new technologies to deal yeah. with these problems. That seems to be the way forward. And the, U- and the U.S. has capabilities that no other country has from our 17 national laboratories and the six and a half billion dollars to uh, universities, research institutes, uh, to startups and big companies. You know, there, it's amazing. There are 62 private sector projects on advanced nuclear research in the United States. I was sort of stunned when I saw that number. I mean, we have a culture that in, encourages that type of innovation. And to, you know, to also to support, you know, I talk about a shale revolution. There's also a solar revolution because the costs of solar have come way down, making it more competitive. And that, you know, helps accelerate it on, the, on that side. And so we probably move towards decarbonizing electricity more rapidly than other sectors of our economy. What's also interesting in the book is if you talk about sort of private sector competition between American companies and, and companies around the world, if we think about the big three again, the U.S. has an advantage over Russia and Saudi Arabia, not only because of the dynamism of our economy, but also those two are pretty stagnant in that they've, they've focused a lot on oil. Um, they also have a perception problem in that their leaders are pretty bad guys, right? I mean, we have the Navalny issue right now with Russia and you've got the Khashoggi murder um, in Saudi Arabia. And it, while it seems like at least our administration doesn't mind being friendly with those two, those could the leaders of those two countries could perhaps uh, lead to cost down the line where other nations don't want to engage with them in the private sector or even, you know, look to diversify away from them in the oil sectors. 
Well, I think that, you know, a Biden administration, if there's an ex-presidency, will have a lot of challenges on foreign policy in terms of dealing with a whole host of countries. Middle East, I mean, I think this United Arab Emirates deal with Israel is actually quite significant and is an example of the new map that I write about in the Middle East. But uh, but I think that, you know, that probably the toughest issue is actually going to be U.S. relations with China, because these are the two largest economies in the world. And as you were saying before, uh, it, it, you know, there, where there's sense to be a sense that these, you know, we're coming together now, we're coming apart pretty fast. And that's the biggest concern. And before you talked about China as a current position as a consumer, where China has advantages is one, if it imports less oil, and it's the half the world's electric cars are in China, uh, then that strategically helps it, you know, from its position. The other hand, they've carved out a pretty significant position in the, in the new energies, uh, in lithium battery supply chain. And, you know, one big reason solar costs have come down is because of this Chinese manufacturing juggernaut. Chinese produce about 70% of the solar panels in the world today. So they have an advantage there. Why can't we make 70% of the solar panels? Uh, because the Chinese are, you know, when I was starting my previous book, The, the Quest, because uh, I wrote a lot about how wind and solar, which are both about 50-year-old industries, you know, modern wind and solar, how this company in Germany, Q-Cells, was the largest producer of solar panels in the world. And by the time I finished the book, it had gone bankrupt because of Chinese competition. The Chinese had just undercut everybody else. And even India, which wants more solar, but they don't want to import panels from China, but they've got to be competitive to China. And it's still not completely clear to me. You know, you get a lot of different views as how is China able to drive down the cost of solar so low? Is it is it just they're really good at manufacturing? Is it government policies and supports? And just that question's not clear, but you know, but they dominate uh, the world market right now. That's 70%. And then you look at where other panels come from and they're Chinese companies producing in, in, in other countries. So they have a pretty strong position now. I think we'll see if uh, with a Biden presidency and maybe and even a Trump continuation, an effort to kind of revive some of these industries in the United States, and particularly as we become lithium batteries, you know, become more important as EVs become more important. I mean, can the U.S. compete with the Chinas of the world, et cetera, with more government investment in these industries? I mean, I know that's usually, uh, you know, a lot of people frown on that because they like the market. And I understand that. But some governments sometimes pick winners and losers. Well, I think if you look at the Biden uh, climate plan, it calls for a lot of government investment in uh, renewables and new technologies, you know, and really, you know, trying to accelerate it. So I think we would see a lot more government's support. There's already government support for EVs in terms of all the, you know, incentives that are provided to it. But I think that uh, the Biden plan would certainly plan to spend more money accelerating that in the United States. We talked about India initially. I want to talk about this now because I think it's an interesting sort of flip we've, since we've talked about China. With India, it seems like there's a competition for India's love, in effect. Uh, and the fact that we have oil to sell it and of course, our, our military, et cetera. But the oil aspect seems to be a key player in why the U.S. and India have grown so closely. Well, yeah, I've seen it, uh, you know, because I'm part of this India energy think tank in, in India. And, you know, that has been one of the platforms in which uh, concrete cooperation between the Indian government and, and the U.S. government. I have a picture in the book of, uh, uh, of Trump with uh, Prime Minister Modi, and the, you know, the quote was, and this was 
I mean, this is Trump. He said, well, we're going to do a deal on uh, LNG and you're going to buy a lot of LNG. I'm just trying to get the price up a little bit. You know, it's sort of like this odd joke. <laughs> uh, and you just sort of, what? I mean, you don't really actually own the gas that you're selling, but anyway, but it's that, that mode, but that's become significant. But the other thing, and this obviously goes to an area that you focused a lot on, is the strategic area issue too, which is uh, China and India have been exchanging, you know, bullets on, in, on their frontier right now. The competition between China and India is strong and it shows up in the uh, Indian Ocean uh, in a whole host of things. So also there is this kind of, um, you know, China has its belt and road and the U.S. and Japan and India talk about Indo-Pacific trying to sort of, so there is a kind of global game of nations that's going on. And, and you know, India is much more aligned now with the United States and is really quite concerned about China, which it sees as its great rival. And I'm going to touch a little bit on what we probably talked about in, in the first section, but it would seem that, you know, if there's a game of nations happening, of course, it's the big three as we discussed, right? But at the same time, if you have China involved, if you have India involved, it would seem, uh, you know, you talk about a clash of nations being in the book. If we're we're going to see a, a splitting in effect, and you could see some of these nodes come together, come apart as needed, it would, your book more than just the geopolitics of energy seems to be um, a lament on a complete fracturing of the way sort of the world order is existed and energy is just a part of that. Well, it's interesting. That, yeah, the word lament, it is true. You know, as I write, was writing the new map, of course, the books I've previously written echo in my mind. My first book was on the origins of the Soviet-American Cold War. And I didn't expect to write a new book about new Cold Wars ever. And here, maybe that's where we're headed. And then I wrote a book called Commanding Heights about you know, an open world economy where people could travel, where students could go back and forth between countries very easily. And now I guess you're right. It is sort of lamenting because, you know, that was a, you know, that open economy, it raised issues and it needed to be addressed and what it did to, you know, uh, industries and so forth. But it was a, you know, a powerful thing for economic growth, for lifting people out of poverty, uh, you know, contributing to our, you know, standard of living and so forth and the exchange of people. And now, um, you know, where sort of comity is being replaced by suspicion. So I hadn't thought about that way, but it, it is a kind of lament for a fragmenting uh, world and, you know, and thinking that a fragmenting world is a more dangerous world. What role then has the U.S. played a part in this? Because it would seem that you know, not only is it just the Trump administration, but in this which seems to, you know, America first, do it ourselves, tell everyone to kind of go about it there on their own. And a factor in this, not saying that it's the determining factor, but the fact that we do have um, not energy independence, but energy power, and or at least more more right. uh, freedom to navigate, let's say. Yeah, uh, literally and figuratively. Right, exactly. Uh, I mean, what role has then that sort of development played in the fact that the U.S. goes, well, maybe we don't need to be as much of a global binder now since we can go on our own, we, this fragments. You know, I think we're going to have a real lot of soul searching over the next few years about what is the role in the U.S. So do we still, if, we're, if we don't provide leadership in the world, if we don't have, you know, our alliances, which have been such a source of strength, is this going to be a world that ultimately will be uh, more fragmented, more dangerous? Look at the way this vaccine, this, this health crisis has been handled. If it had been more collaborative, more cooperative, more exchange, less vituperation, 
you know, would probably be in a better place today. But it's been handled in a very nationalistic way, it seems to me. And, uh, you know, and the U.S. has certainly been, so we'll go our own way. And I think, you know, that makes it much harder to deal with this, a grave crisis like the one we're in today. So, you know, you do look back at history when systems break down. And I think we're kind of, I mean, I'm an optimist by nature, but, you know, at the end of the, the new map, I, I sort of say all these things that have happened that people didn't anticipate, like a global pandemic, financial crisis, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But two things that, you know, could be out there, one is climate change and the other is this clash of nations. And I think the clash of nations, you know, I wouldn't have used that as a subtitle four or five years ago. And I think, as you pointed out, this change of opinion about China actually predated the Trump administration. It's really accentuated. And there's no question that China's going down a different road. Um, you know, I have in the book this picture of Xi Jinping after he becomes a leader, taking his Politburo to a museum right after and standing in front of an exhibit, you know, about the century of humiliation and saying that's, you know, over. So you have a China that is much more assertive in terms of foreign policy and what it's doing than it was a decade ago. And uh, both sides, you know, we're much more interconnected than people recognize. But I think at the same time, what you say, that fragmentation is becoming a bigger and bigger factor. I can see in the book where your optimism and, and I think your um, reluctant pessimism come into, into conflict. Uh, one is the optimistic part being, yay, the U.S. found a lot of this energy, giving us, again, the freedom to navigate the world at quite an interesting time, you know, allowing us to, as you mentioned in another interview, like, you know, we have a championship shirt. Why should we hang it up at, the, at a moment yeah. um, when this is all, you know, when this really helps us in many aspects? Where the pessimistic side comes in is, you know, the U.S. is gaining this authority at a time when climate issues seem most dire, when a lot of our biggest competitors are not great guys, right? MBS and, and, and Putin and Xi Jinping and Modi. And when we need to work and also compete against them and with all very differing non-cooperative foreign policies, it seems like all of these issues have come plus COVID, set aside COVID even, all of these issues have yeah. come to, to conflict at once. And it looks like when the U.S. is usually looked at as sort of the one to go, hey, guys, let's figure out a way forward here. The fact that we have a, a, a moment in time in which we don't feel as much climate responsibility, let's say, uh, because we're fine being an economic superpower and using that energy to compete with others. Well, it seems like it, we're, we're, we're not helping. Well, I mean, it is. Yeah. Well, this all could change on January 21st. So, you know, we don't want to generalize that this is uh, forever. I would, but I would take the point that you've made and say, not only, you know, it's generally been good for the world if the U.S. is not only at the table, but kind of at the head of the table. And instead, if we go over and stand in a corner by ourselves, it makes it a lot harder to deal with a lot of issues. Climate is one, but, you know, trade is one, uh, you know, health is one. Uh, so there are a lot of issues and, you know, overall security is one. And so, you know, I think, I think the U.S. needs to, you know, in general, re-engage with the world and that that would be beneficial. And the reason for doing it is not only because it's good for the world, but it's good for the United States. You know, you have to, you know, I think you have to, you know, look, I, you know, that other term that you use, reluctant pessimism, I, you know, I, I find that a very interesting character because I am an optimist, but I do, you know, if you study history, you see so often how things go wrong, you know, by accident, 
you know, uh, in June 28, 1914, the British fleet was making a friendship visit to the German port of Hamburg. Within six weeks, they were at war with each other. Things happen, and you need frameworks of cooperation, collaboration to deal with the contingencies and the accidents, which are part of history and are part of life. I want to appeal to your optimist side to end this interview then. So okay. what are the ways that we sort of make this map a better place to live in? Well, well, I think it, I, I think that um, technologies look at if we did not imagine if we'd had this pandemic a decade ago without digitalization, without what we're able to do today, we would have been, you know, as bad as the situation is, it would have been so much worse. So you do look, you know, and, you know, ultimately I'm an economic historian. You look at centuries and you see you know, technology changes things. So what would make me um, less reluctant would be, you know, would be restoring this kind of, this international collaboration. And I think that, I think job, you know, job number one for a new administration will be how do you manage this more complex relationship with China? And, you know, the Democrats share, you know, there's really one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans agree on is China is a big problem, you know, in a way that they didn't see it before and how to work together. And the Chinese have their perspectives and things like Hong Kong have happened. So I think if you say, what are going to be the real hard problems? I would put actually relations with China at the top of it. I think Russia's there, but it's the main, you know, Russia, the issue is Russia's still the other nuclear power. Its economy is smaller than Italy's. We sometimes have to remember that. Putin has played a good game and but I think I think doing that, and I think restoring our relationship with our allies, because that has been a, an enormous sense of relate of strength for the United States, and that has become very frayed. So I think there is an agenda here uh, for optimism. But I think as we're looking at this current era, you know, and obviously we're looking through the window of COVID as well. You know, we have to be re- realistic and tough-minded. Well, that is a tradition on the Worldly Podcast to basically end on a note of pessimism. So I think we'll end it there. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, I think tough-mindedness is optimistic. You know, just you know, uh, you know, get ready and be realistic, and uh, but you know, but also determined. So uh, I don't want to end on a note of pessimism because um, uh, I think, uh, but I think, but I think we ought to be realistic about there. But there are plenty of good things that are happening too, and. Uh, you know, and one of the, you know, the great strengths of the United States that we have that no one else has is this incredibly innovative society that makes things happen. And, uh, you know, and it responds to needs and the needs are there. So well, thank sure. you, Alex. Thank you uh, for all. Thank you, worldly listeners, for uh, tuning in. Daniel Jurgen, author of The New Map. Uh, appreciate you being on with us. And please rate and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. So a big part of what makes Worldly worldly and, and you know the podcast you know and love, well, it's it's you. It's it's the listeners. Uh, we really need your help with planning our future. So that's why we want your help to make the show even better as we go down the line. What we need is you to fill out a short survey and give us responses that'll help us understand who's listening, how your listening habits have changed in the past few months during, you know, everything that's happening, and hopefully how we can reach even more people. Go to voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. That's voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. And help us make Worldly even more of the show that you know and love. 
What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.